You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Welcome to the Rooted Podcast. The Rooted Podcast is part of Rooted's mission to equip and empower churches and parents to faithfully disciple students towards lifelong faith in Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Davis Lacey. I'm sitting in Chicago, Illinois, at the 2019 Rooted Conference. It's the morning of day three. Um, Anticipation has turned into excitement, has turned into exhaustion, has turned into just sort of like espresso, caffeine, (laughs) whatever whatever gets the job done. But I'm very excited to be joined today on the Rooted Podcast by Colin Hanson. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how was your trip up? Uh, Pretty easy, yeah. So I lived here for 12 years, so it's always fun to come to Chicago and always fun to escape the 100-degree heat in Birmingham. Absolutely. We're both, we both, live in the south at this point and <laughs> even me being in the mountains of north georgia it was in the 90s when i left on wednesday yeah. i'm yeah. thankful that it's actually feeling like fall yeah no kidding just enjoying as much of it as i can while i'm walking around well good y'all if you're not familiar with with colin and his ministry he is the editorial director for the gospel coalition he's the author of several books and the editor of several books um, those that he's authored include young restless reformed a journalist's journey with the new calvinists and a god-sized vision Revival stories that stretch and stir. You co-authored that with John Woodbridge. I did. Yeah, one of my professors at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. We I mean, wrote that together while I was there. That had to be a full circle moment, both for you and for him. <laughs> well, I had come to him with an idea about something else to write about evangelical history. It was going to be a bit negative, analytical, critical, and he said, "Colin, why don't you write something instead that would be uplifting?" I've had this idea. <laughs> would you like to join me in this? And it's been my uh, kind of probably book that sold the most copies of anything that I've done. It's one that I'm probably asked to speak about more than anything else, sure. including just having come talked about it here. I was about to say, you just did a <laughs> workshop on we maybe we don't have revival because we don't ask. Yeah, exactly. That little uh, biblical phrase there, that was what uh, John Webberton said to me, is maybe we don't see the Lord work in the same ways. But he has in the past because we don't ask for it. Mm. And so just exploring why we don't ask for it and and how we can attend to the ordinary means of grace even as we ask God to work in, in spectacular ways. How helpful. You just sold a copy of your book. I'm going to go buy All one. Right. I wish it was yeah. at the conference book table. <laughs> Colin, you were in your MDiv at, at Trinity, which we just talked about, yeah. and you got your undergraduate degree in journalism from Northwestern University. So you really did spend a lot of time in Chicagoland. Yeah, 12 years. Met my wife here in college. And we right. lived down in the western suburbs and and then, uh, yeah, before heading out to New Jersey and then the South. Okay. And you edited Our Secular Age, 10 Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor, and the New City Catechism Devotional, among many other books. You and your wife, and what's your wife's name? Lauren. Lauren. You and Lauren belong to Redeemer Community Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and you also serve on the advisory board of Beeson Divinity School. Mm-hmm. Any errata in that bio <laughs> no, that I just read? No, you are. That is completely correct. All Probably because right. I wrote it myself on the Gospel Coalition <laughs> website. <laughs> Or you borrowed it. It's it's better to come from the source. It it really is. Well, Colin, I'm excited to have, um, honestly, just maybe a platform for you to tell your story, and that is why youth ministry matters to you, why youth ministry matters to Colin Hanson. You've written in in numerous places that I've read that you came to follow Jesus when you were 15 years old. Is that right? That's correct. Were you part of church-related activities before your conversion? A bit. So my... If you go way back with my family, my my mom's side of the family actually went back to the Great Awakening, uh, the Calvinistic Methodists in Wales of the 18th century. So 
It's a big part of our, our family's history. But by the time that got down to me and my parents, my dad had grown up Lutheran, uh, my mom Methodist, it was sort of like, we're good Midwestern farm people, so what do we do? We take our kids to church because um, they go to Sunday school so they can learn good values and good morals. But talking about God in general was not something we did in my family. It was a pretty uncomfortable thing. So so I did not, uh, not it was not a huge part of our lives, but it was a regular, generally speaking, part of our lives. And so I did participate in United Methodist Youth Fellowship, and that was actually one of the ways that I began to, to learn about uh, God, not necessarily always through the leaders, but through some of the ways that the Lord was working through um, uh, through some of the fellow students. Sure. And so you know, what, what role, I guess, you said you're part of church activities, yeah. probably, um, like, what were those like for you before your conversion? Did you enjoy those? Was it uh, something you just kind of did? Yeah, so I, I went through confirmation, uh, okay. which is a, con- a standard thing in the United Methodist Church, and that was 8th uh, and ninth grade. Remember, 8th grade was... I just I remember the I remember the teacher. I remember how devoted he was. He was one of our local doctors and had kids around my age and I just remember the sacrifice that he made of of trying to catechize us, really, like mm. memorizing scripture, memorizing the Apostles' Creed, learning about the Christian faith. He was my person of like, I'm going to ask him about the dinosaurs. You know, what is the situation <laughs> with the dinosaurs? You know, so so I remember that was a really positive experience, but my classmates did not want to be there. And the sense of confirmation in the Methodist church, even from a lot of parents, was this is graduation from church. You go until you go to confirmation, and then you're done. Uh, and I remember one Christmas Eve, it was probably actually earlier than that, I remember looking around, can even picture in my mind that Methodist sanctuary. I remember thinking, I'm so glad my generation is going to realize one day that this is all a sham hmm. and we'll stop play acting hmm. um, around here. And remember, I, you know, my grandparents have been devoted to the church, but, and then my parents kind of, but they really felt very uncomfortable doing it at duty. And then I'm thinking, okay, finally, my generation would be the one to say, there's a lot of better ways to spend your Sundays than wasting your time. Yeah. Here. It sounds like uh, one generation believes the gospel, the next yeah. assumes it, so and then the next rejects it. Rejects I mean, it, just like Carson always says. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And and so it seems like I mean, cold are the things of the Lord before yeah. regeneration, um, obviously. But but then, what role, if any, did youth ministry play in your conversion? What did that look like? So there was a sort of revival ministry that would come through different towns, especially in the Midwest during this time in the nineteen nineties and early two thousands, and um, was invited by friends and. It never hurts if you're a high school sophomore and some high school junior girls invite you Amen. to something. Amen. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't hurt. And so when I went to this revival ministry, I had never really experienced anything like this before, but I was immediately overwhelmed by the enthusiasm and the joy. I didn't really think of myself as a particularly joyless child, but I suppose I, I suspect I was probably a fairly serious child. And I remember at the beginning of this revival weekend, they um, they took a picture of all of the students there, and I'm sitting in like the third row, and just I'm just like mean mugging the camera <laughs> there, like I, I'm I'm not happy to be there. I'm just like, what is wrong with these students? And by the end of the weekend, I just remember thinking, huh, I, I didn't know you could be excited about God. Mm. I, I just didn't know that was a 
possibility. In our church, if you were excited about God, the rest of us made fun of you because Mm. we all knew we were there even though we didn't want to be. And so that just blew up my categories. I couldn't understand that. And there was just a general sense. I have to admit, I, I didn't... I didn't have a well-defined sense of the gospel or articulation of the gospel. I didn't have a well-defined understanding of my sin. Though I generally had those categories, sure. categories growing up in the church. Sure. I was singing those hymns. I generally understood the basics of Christianity. I was not ignorant of those things. But I just remember what stood out to me was, I want what these people have. And mm. it sounds... It sounds a. Uh, cheesy in a way that only the 1990s can be cheesy, but I remember listening to DC Talk and, you know, talking about, like, being in the light. I want to be in the light. Yes. You know, and I was like, that's that's what I feel like. That is the longing of my heart. I want to not just have these people as friends, that wouldn't be bad, but I want whatever sense of joy they have in the Lord, I want that to characterize me. And through that basic, even maybe in some ways unspoken petition, the Lord did grant that faith in ways that was immediately in ways that were immediately apparent, rather dramatic, and inducing my parents to sit me down on the couch back in the living room on the farm and say, "What happened? Like this does not. I don't understand what you just went through." Um, event, and mm. we, we we would clash over that at times. Eventually, they became supportive. Eventually, they themselves uh, were born again and baptized um, as Lord. adults. Yeah. yeah, so so very encouraging there. But um, but yeah, so that was the basic. I mean, so age fifteen, youth ministry. I've seen the best. I've seen. The worst. I've seen the Lord bless some very strange ministries. <laughs> I've seen a lot, but I really desire to see youth ministries thrive um, in the gospel. Did you have the WWJD DC Talk album oh, bracelet? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't. But can you like me rap Toby <laughs> Mac's opening riff of Jesus Freak? Probably, probably it's, can't. I mean, it was. It still comes back to me anytime I hear that song. I'm like, this is my jam. This is it. <laughs> this is. The, I mean, it's hard to explain the '90s. I think to some people who didn't uh, live through it as a teenager. But I mean, DC Talk was on the local rock stations. Um, Jars of Clay was was just coming about with with really some high quality music that again was being played in mainstream uh, radio places and you just had this massive CCM ministry or industry which I know had a lot of problems with it but if you were somebody like me looking to try to walk with the Lord and to be edified in what you were listening to there yeah. were a lot of really good options yeah. out there at the time so in retrospect there were there were a lot of blessings that I couldn't quite have the context to understand at the time hmm. so obviously music was was, was part of the, yeah, the sure. change like sort of just the practical fruit of yeah. man I've been born again and this is different what were some of the other ways that as a teenager you started noticing the redeeming work of Jesus really bearing fruit in your life yeah it's a it's a good question because um, as I immediately think of that I think of the areas that it didn't change hmm. in my life it didn't immediately bring sanctification in sexual areas. It did not immediately bring sanctification in my relationship with my parents. I I was pretty combative and argumentative with them. Uh, What it did is really just give me a taste for the things of the Lord. So a desire to read the Bible, a desire to evangelize, a desire to study, a desire to serve him, a desire to be able to lead other people, to see them come to know the Lord. Those are the things that it really did change. And and my basic disposition, I think, toward things. There was a certain, uh, especially when you convert at 
age 15, you're really coming into your own in a lot of ways. So those, for me, coincided a lot of, I mean, those, those weeks uh, in March of 1997, when I was 15, those were really like the most dramatic transformative times of my life in general, um, just in kind of on the path toward adulthood. So, so it did bring a lot of changes, but it did not actually change everything in ways that remained, uh, pretty, pretty painful. Yeah. That's a good, I think it's a good, just encouragement for lack of better words for maybe some parents and certainly some youth ministers who are shepherding teenagers of, and the Lord has been faithful in your life in, in visible ways. We're grateful for your ministry, but that didn't all happen overnight. No, it did not. It did not. Good stuff. Colin, I want to read a, uh, an excerpt from your introduction to gospel-centered youth ministry. And I should have brought the book. It probably would have looked better <laughs> on the video. But I just I took a picture of you. I took a picture. This is probably copyright infringement somehow. But maybe since you wrote the uh, maybe Crossway will forgive us. Yes, that's true. I'm not publishing it. We're just we're just going to read it. Um, y'all, if you haven't read gospel-centered youth ministry, I would, I would commend it to you. It is uh, written by several folks who are youth ministry practitioners. And it's just a helpful resource for anyone seeking to, to love teenagers in light of the gospel. But you write this, um, and and you share a little bit about your experience in youth group and things that began to change your life forever. You said, this experience has made me simultaneously thankful for youth groups and also concerned that they not lose their way. While we're so concerned with keeping the youth entertained or promoting moral lifestyle, we can easily forget the message of first importance. Mm. What, when the excitement's obvious. Youth ministry's had a, a lasting impact on your life. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the ways that you are concerned that youth ministry might lose its way? So, I just in my experience, I was coming to know the Lord within a, a an ecclesial context in the church that was marked overall by theological liberalism. So there was certainly some tension within there. We had leaders who were doing their best. I mean, that's just one of the difficulties in the main line is that people are all over the map spiritually. Sure. Um, and so you, you'd get very faithful people devoted to the church, desiring to help. And you just get some strange other, other people just trying to plug the gaps in there. And without a strong, coherent theological formation or, or foundation in there, not a strong sense of history. And so that's one area where, where I am very concerned about youth ministry. There's a sense that we have to keep up with the times. We have to change with the times. The youth aren't going to keep coming unless we change what we believe. Um, if you grew up like I did in the 90s, then you were followed in your college years and post-college years by the emerging church. Hmm. And that's a lot of what came out of the emerging church. We have to change our theology to be able to get with the times. And one of the last vestiges or strongest vestiges of that mistaken belief today has been some youth uh, uh, ministries and networks continuing to proffer that same mistaken solution uh, to the problems of, of youth and the church. Hmm. Um, that's one concern. But then I even see some people who have generally conservative theological orientations still are not sufficiently theologically formed. And so they think still that youth ministry is a kind of babysitting opportunity or it's just sort of a necessary evil or it's a way to hype the kids to the point of baptism slash conversion, whatever, in there. And then, um, you know, just sort of keep them so that the parents don't complain. You know, like the, the one thing we can't seem to abide 
is the high school student who comes back and the parent says, so how was youth group? And the, and the, and the student says, oh, it's so lame. It's so boring whatever like and then the parent and then they don't want to go anymore for mm. whatever reason and the parent complains to the pastor the only time the pastor the, the senior pastor sometimes the only time the senior pastor notices anything about the youth ministry is when a parent complains sure. about it sure and then all of a sudden they're like well what are you doing over there you must not be doing what you're supposed to be doing because i'm hearing complaints about this but that may or may not it may be because we're just being boring and we don't know how to teach to youth which is hard I mean, especially if we've got seminary students or seminary graduates who are trying to learn all the way up here on these high-minded theology ideas, and they're trying to translate that to youth, even seventh graders. That's hard. It's hard. Let's just admit that that's hard. So sometimes it could be because of immaturity, and there's grace. Thank you for saying that. that. Well, it's just, I mean, we were talking about this at the Gospel Coalition recently, that it's easier for, for us to be able to write at high levels with lots of jargon than it is to translate into shorter uh, writings for a popular audience. Hmm. Um, it, it's, it's harder to do that. Uh, I think we often make that mistake. So that's just a, a general challenge in youth ministry. So it could be because we just need to continue to grow in that, and then we will, quote unquote, become more entertaining there. But it might be because we're doing our job, because we're trying to catechize. We're trying to to teach people the, the things of God and get into the, the details and the nuances of Scripture and to deal with ethical challenges and to deal with apologetic questions. It, it might be because we're doing the right thing, but these children have not been, maybe they haven't been discipled at home, so they don't have, even have a taste of these things. That's why they think it's boring. Or maybe because the Lord just hasn't worked in their hearts, um, granting them a saving faith at the time. And that's not our fault. We can't manufacture that. So um, I do think sometimes we, we then think, well, let's try to dumb it down to lowest common denominator. Let's just sort of throw a bunch of activities and food at the problem, and then nobody <laughs> will complain about it. You know, we'll just make it a relational type ministry. And so I just think there are a couple different ways that it can go wrong. It can go wrong in a theologically liberal way. It can even go wrong in a kind of conservative way. And that's one reason why I appreciate Rooted so much is because Rooted's not against fun. Like, Rooted is a very fun place with fun leaders and fun ministries. It's, it's uh, you know, but at the same time, it's very doctrinally serious. And on top of that, gospel-centered, that this is about transformation, life transformation through the power of the Spirit, exalting the risen Christ who ascends and intercedes on our behalf, Um, that that's really the focus there, and everything flows from that, but that's not inconsistent with theological formation and fun. You can bring all of them together. That's one thing I just love about Rooted and, and hope that ministries, either on the liberal end or the conservative end, uh, we want to see how that can come together in such a beautiful way. Amen. Thank you for um, thank you for that. Thoughtful, thoughtful, and well appreciated. One of the things that we do on the Rooted Podcast whenever we get an opportunity is simply to ask some questions to get to know you at a little bit more personal level. So I'm gonna fire off some lightning right. round, okay. lightning round, rapid fire questions. Okay. Which I think are going to be fun. Okay, so <laughs> I got to I got to remember these. I think you even gave us some of these ahead of time. I, was I, like, I need you, to I need to be thinking about these, and then a, I didn't think I, about I, them. I gave you all so of now these I'm stuck. Like, nope, you're, yep, that's, that's, on, that's on you. That's on you. That's totally. On um, me. Which which is amazing. Now, all right. So uh, give give me one thing that you did growing up on a farm that you uh, wish more people could experience for themselves. <laughs> well. Uh, I mean, I, the two, two things that stand out to me, I don't know that I really wish people would have to do this, but it's a formative experience. 
I can think of the month of March, and I can think of being in a feedlot chasing cattle. Uh, you know, you've got to move them off to be sold. You have to move them into a different pen. And in March in the Midwest, it's so wet. It's so, you know, snow is melting and stuff like that. You're walking around in rubber boots, and at some point your rubber boots get stuck in the muck, and you can't get them out, and you have to keep running in your socks, and you try not to think about what you're running in, and you know that's just a that's a that's a that's a memorable experience uh, for a for somebody growing up on a farm. I would also think about those days when you're like, oh, okay, we're not having school today, which is a big deal where I came from because. You know, you'd, you'd go to school through just about anything. Sure. But if you didn't have it, and you're like, oh, good, we get to hang out. No. Now, that means you get to walk to the feed bunks for the cattle, and it means you get to try to stand between this concrete bu- in this concrete bunker next to a live wire, uh, electrified wire, to keep the cattle from running out. Uh, and, and while you're getting shocked, on the one hand, you're trying to scoop snow out of these feed bunks so that the cattle will actually eat the corn and the silage and things like that being placed in there. So I don't know that I wish those things on other people, but they're memorable <laughs> in such a way that I just think, I don't know, we, we convince ourselves growing up with harm that this is what makes us the people we are, a hearty, good, all-American people. So I could have said something more positive about the farm, but that's what's memorable <laughs> to me. I love it. No, but I, was, I was hoping you were going to go in that direction. Okay. I was, I, was hoping, I was hoping we we're going to go there. Oh, that's good. That's good. All right. Other than DC Talk, <laughs> okay. Name a. I mean, you can you can say DC Talk, but name a musical artist or group that people would be surprised to learn that you listen to. I don't know how surprised they would be to listen to to learn of this. Um, I my musical tastes changed a lot when I moved to the South. I don't know what it was like. I uh, there was a lot of country music where I grew up. And it was basically a lot of Nashville kind of stuff about dogs and trucks Trucks. and beers and women. And I just was that was never interesting to me. Um, You know, I didn't have a George Strait phase or a Garth Brooks phase or something like that. But when I came to the South, I really started gravitating toward some of the folk Americana slash country music like Jason Isbell. Okay, yes. Uh, So an Alabama native and just uh, his albums. If I'm going to listen to anything, uh, typically... Yeah, on an airplane or something like that. It's it's typically Jason Isbell. That's awesome. Uh, What is the most embarrassing thing that happened to you during a youth ministry function that you attended? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Well, I mean, I... (laughs) I think I was the kind of person who did every kind of activity. And you're in a small school in a rural part of the part of the country, so you you kind of you're doing the National Honor Society and the FFA Club Future Farmers of America and you're doing 4H another agricultural thing and you're doing the football team and you're and then you're marching in the band and playing football at the same time you're, you're marching in your football uniform it's incredible you know so stuff like that it wasn't really embarrassing that was just sort of normal but I remember in youth ministry the last time I went through this revival thing I was part of the singing ministry and I was pretty successful musically, especially playing the trombone, things like that, all-state band, you know, big deal. And um, But I'm not a great singer. <laughs> but I put myself up there and just, you know, these kind youth leaders of like, Colin, 
you just you just don't sound very good. <laughs> you know, you're a little flat all the time. And I'm like, I can't tell the difference. This is the best that I have. I can't do anything about this. But I learned that my future in the church was going to be more in the preaching and the teaching side of things and not on the music side yep. of things. Plus, how many places, especially since ska faded with the 90s, how many places are going to have trombones in their uh, worship music? Did you, uh, did you ever listen to Five Iron Frenzy course, or I mean, the OCC Pretends? Man, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I, love, I love some Five Iron Friends. I'm telling you, you so can't good. you can't really explain the '90s it's, until unless somebody lived it. So like, good. no, there was a time of Christian music when it was kind of all over the place. And it was it the Wild West, and yes, it wasn't it was. just Sonic Flood worship music. <laughs> And K-Love. Like, I tell you, there was something else going on. It wasn't just that. It wasn't so terrible. Maybe it was kind of terrible, but it wasn't that bad. That's incredible. (laughs) So, trombone and marching band, what positions you play on the football field? Uh, Offensive center and defensive tackle at a a robust 200 pounds in nine-man football in South Dakota. Okay. Yeah, both ways. It's amazing. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. How How many total people were on your team? Uh, not probably like twenty five. Okay, you know, okay. like so. That's not bad. Uh, I think it's it kind of fluctuates. The year, my my junior year was probably about forty. Okay, uh, and then the school recently they'll get down below twenty sometimes, and they'll have to think maybe we need to drop to. South Dakota is a weird place. For a state of eight hundred thousand people, there are seven classes of high school football. That's amazing. <laughs> so three classes of nine man football, four classes of eleven man football. That's amazing. So it's like. Everybody gets a trophy. That's <laughs> incredible. South Dakota That's high amazing. Football. Uh, oh my goodness! All right, so we've talked about South Dakota a little bit. We've yeah. talked obviously about our our gripes with the South and the weather. It's true. Um, name name one thing that you miss about your time in Chicago. Uh, well, I made a lot of good friends here. Um, I miss uh, you know I miss days like today, beautiful days in October. This, the smells of the grass and the crisp air and everybody going to brunch and then heading up to watch the football game. I mean, I was walking around Northwestern yesterday and just taking in the lakefront and wishing there was a game on Saturday to yeah. go to. And so I just, I miss a lot of that. I, I, I love the South. I mean, I really, I really love being there. Um, I've taken to it. I think people know that I, I love being there, but um, when you travel a lot, when you, you grow up and you, you leave and you live other places and work other places. You kind of leave a little bit of your heart and a little bit of your your personality and a little bit of your, your life in each place that you go to. And you go later with a desire thinking, how do I, how could I ever bring it all together? And you never can. Um, but each place you visit, when you get to teach in, an opera, in a situation like this, you just remember a little bit of, of that life. And sometimes you remember the hard things, hmm. uh, but sometimes you remember the happy things. And uh Early October, crisp days outside are um, That's good. pretty fun. That's good. Last rapid-fire question I'll give you is this. Give us a Christian author who is currently under the radar, oh. but who we need to be paying attention to moving forward. Okay, so this is, this is a fun question. My, one, of my, one of my jobs at the Gospel Coalition is to judge our first-time authors. Uh, first-time authors for any books that, that come out. And it's usually one of the strongest categories because somebody might not write, write 25 books, but they, you know, a lot of people will write one book. And so I usually get a lot of the strongest contenders. And 
This year we have a lot of strong contenders from Rachel Den Hollander to Costi Hinn. And maybe by the time the podcast comes out, we will have announced those awards. We'll see things like that. But um, the person who comes to mind is actually a friend of mine, Matt McCullough. Uh, He's at Trinity Church in Nashville, right next to Vanderbilt. He did his PhD uh, at uh, Vanderbilt in uh, American religious history, in American history, but focusing on late 19th century. Wrote a book called Remember Death, Mm. and um, talked about the surprising hope we find in remembering that we will all die. And it's just the kind of a bit morbid thing that I'm drawn to, and I think Matt's also drawn to. We're both fans of Southern literature, and and there's a lot of that uh, sort of gothic sense in, in Southern literature. Uh, but beyond that, that book is is so compelling because it helps us to understand how living in light of the truth of uh, of the way this world works, for better and for worse helps remind us of the hope that we have in Christ, in his resurrection, that this is not the end, but this is just the beginning. Mm. Um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I think just Matt doesn't, Matt's not on social media, so talk about under the radar, um, but he is a successful and faithful church planter. He's written this book. He's got an academic background. He's just a really wonderful guy. And so I would love more people to know about Matt, especially that book. And uh, maybe if we we harass him enough, he'll write more books. Maybe so. (laughs) Maybe so. Thank you for sharing that. There was was a reason I asked you that question. Um, I knew you'd give us a good answer. Colin, thanks so much for your time. I want to just tie a bow on this interview with you with one final question. And that question is this. One of the foundations, Colin, of Rooted's philosophy of ministry is relational discipleship. Um, And you talk so much about the value of you seeing teenage friends who had joy in in a way that you didn't have. And a lot of what your youth ministry experience was wasn't so much the articulated teaching. (laughs) Maybe in spite of the articulated teaching. Yeah, it was actually in some Um, ways, for sure. But in in spite of that, seeing this embodiment of gospel fruit joy, one Mm -hmm. of, you know, part of the fruit of the Spirit. So um, as, as you think about this, I'd love for you to share just what are some of the ways that, in your opinion, youth ministry leaders can go about fostering a community where there's relationships that make people more like Jesus? Oh, big question. Good question. Uh, one of the things I've, I've seen now is there's, there's some dichotomy between belonging and belief. And some people t- want to talk about the need to be able to believe first before we belong. And then other people will say, no, we often have to allow them to belong before they believe. And sometimes they can be pitted against each other. And if you're talking on the one hand about like the membership of the church and the purity of the church and, and, and health of the church and things like that in membership, then certainly you're talking there about belief before belonging. Um, I've seen what it's like in a mainline context where you have a lot of unregenerate church members or church leaders even. It really wreaks havoc on a church. But I do think we are generally in a time that is awash in resources. We just I don't think we understand that at the dawn, we're still really at the dawn of the information age of just a revolution in in just the amount of content and how overwhelming that content is when we just think about the resources available to us, including in ministry, through places like the Gospel Coalition yes. and and all kinds of different places, never more books and podcasts and things like that ever before. But even while we rejoice in that that benefit and we want to be very clear in about our articulation of the gospel and theology and focus on that in our teaching, 
So much of how the gospel spreads is when people have safety and time to be able to ask questions and to be able to watch other people work through those questions and and help them with them. I remember years ago, even, I was talking about, talking to students in the Ivy League at Dartmouth of, of how do students convert? When they come to Christ, what happens? And they said, well, usually they come in thinking, I can't be a Christian Hmm. because Christians are dumb and they can't answer all these scientific questions. And your thought might be then, okay, then we need to impress them to show that we're not dumb and we need to answer all those questions. Sure. Okay, we can do that. But here's what actually happens. Somebody comes and says, oh, you're a Christian. Huh. But wait a minute. I kind of like you <laughs> and you seem pretty smart. You're like a pre-med student. You know, like, I don't know. You, you seem to study hard and things like that. Do you have, do you have questions or did you have questions about the faith? Oh, sure. A lot of them. Have, have you found answers? Yes. Do you still have some questions? Yeah, I still do. But you're okay with it. Like you're mm. a Christian. You believe Jesus is God. You believe he's risen from the dead, but you're, 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 you're okay with that. Yeah. See, the thing is, you don't actually, you're not going to be able to answer everybody's questions. Mm. And that's not even what's happening. A lot of times they just need to know that somebody else has worked through it and that they found answers. And that's enough for them because in some ways it's aspirational to say, I can see myself being one of these people here, there. So creating environments where people can come and they can feel safe to be honest in confession safe to ask their questions, safe to air their doubts. Where else would we rather have them talk about these things than in a youth ministry when they have pastors and when they have parents who can help them and peers who can help them. And then also just to give them time to recognize it's not probably all going to happen at once for everybody. But yeah, give them safety and time to be able to develop within an affirming, encouraging, but challenging environment. And I think a lot of our youth ministries do this. I think a lot of our most successful churches uh, that are reaching young people also do this as well. And I guess the last thing I would say on top of that is major on the majors Mm. and be careful about adding a number of other different expectations to the gospel. That's good. Um, Don't flatten out our biblical teaching. You're going to have to triage in certain ways to focus on first importance things that are important for us as a church and then things that good Christians are going to disagree on. There's certain, again, a theological triage that happens there. So that kind of environment of relationship, relational discipleship, I think you can see a lot of, a lot of flourishing of discipleship, people growing in their faith and also coming to faith for the first time. Colin, I really appreciate your insights. I know you're a busy guy um, and we appreciate it rooted you taking time to, to sit down and bless us with your insights today so thank you for that if folks want to learn more about you and your ministry where would you send them thegospelcoalition.org thegospelcoalition.org we're so grateful for Colin and we're grateful for his ministry and the ministry of the Gospel Coalition um, thank you very much for joining us on the Rooted Podcast today and if you're looking for another place to find grace-filled gospel-centered Bible-saturated resources for discipling students towards lifelong faith in Jesus, be sure to visit the website www.rootedministry.com. This has been the Rooted Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. 
You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.